I mean, it feels like that the work you're doing with the bail industry is so much more needed with Jeff Session just recently coming out saying we have to go harder than we, you know, we have to prosecute everybody to the fullest extent of the law. Confederate Jeff. Um, <laughs> Confederate, Confederate Jeff. Um, From Topic and Earwolf, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamal Bell. And I'm the H-Man, Hari Kundabolu. Hmm. Oh, please don't call me the H-Man. That's a mistake. The incredible H-Man strikes terror to every... The show where two comedians, W. Kamal Bell and the H-Man, 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 try to make sense of politics in America. Ah, oh, God damn it. On today's show, we're speaking with the executive director of the largest online racial justice organization, Color of Change. And that is, of course, Rashad Robinson. Color of Change was one of the first organizations to popularize petition-based campaigns. We're all used to this now, you see them everywhere, but Color of Change was there early, right after Katrina in 2005, and they actually get shit done. If you're mad about the criminal justice system, or predatory consumer products, or cuts in community investment, or dehumanizing portrayals of black people in news and entertainment, then we should date. Also, Color of Change has an action for you. Remember Glenn Beck? I don't really either. Well, you can thank Color of Change for that. He no longer has a job at Fox News to say obnoxious shit like this. This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. Color of Change had a hand in forcing Glenn Beck off of Fox News in 2009 by holding advertisers and the network accountable. Remember what happened to Bill (laughs) O'Reilly? Yeah. Me too. But let's just reminisce. Bill O'Reilly fired after a spate of sexual harassment allegations. Oh, that was great. And you can thank Color of Change for that too, with organizations like Ultraviolet, The Women's March, Now New York, Credo, Sleeping Giants, and Move On. Color of Change got more than 60 major advertisers to dump the O'Reilly factor, or as I call it, The O'Reilly fuck you. (laughs) It's like a pun, but obscene and enjoyable for me to say. Rashad Robinson joined Color of Change in 2011. Before that, he served as the senior director of media programs at the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, a.k.a. GLAAD. He's intersectional, he's progressive, he's out in the streets fighting for justice. Here's him at a rally for Trayvon Martin in 2012. Folks who have never met each other, folks from all around the country and all around the world are standing up and saying that we want democracy to work for us, that we will not allow the criminal justice system to ignore us. And today we're going to talk to Rashad Robinson about taking down Bill O'Reilly, voter suppression efforts, the $2 billion bail industry, Donald Trump, and Alec. And we don't mean Baldwin. We should totally get Alec Baldwin on the show. But I want to get Billy Baldwin on the show. But we're agreed no Stephen Baldwin, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey, Hurry. Hey, Kamal. 
Normally we have to do that over the phone, but I'm actually looking at you right now. Yeah, we're in Seattle, Washington, hanging out. You had a show last night at the Neptune Theater. Yes, I did. And were they wonderful? They were wonderful. That's an amazing theater. Shout out to the Neptune. They were so great. Uh, we we got to the show late, uh, which is not how you're supposed to do a show huh. that you're headlining, because my opener, Dwayne Kennedy of the TV show Totally Biased, just came down from his hotel room late. <laughs> what do you mean? I, I, me, the headliner, was in the car waiting on the opener. Uh, for those who don't know, Dwayne Kennedy, I've known him for since I, like two weeks into comedy. So it's he's kind of a mentor and also one of my best friends. He was in my wedding. But Dwayne operates on Dwayne time. So uh, we were late to the show. Like they were like scared. I mean, we got there basically at the time we were supposed to go on, like at eight o'clock when the show started. So yeah. you don't start at eight anyway. But it was also like, I was like, come on, you can't be late. I can be late. <laughs> Dwayne. And it was also like, I can't Dwayne. leave you at the hotel because you're the opener. You know? It's hard to explain Dwayne Kennedy to people. The man is a legend that you should know about. But Dwayne is Dwayne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, I mean, it's funny as we talk about, he's, uh, he's like, you know, it's like the sly, he's like the sly stone of comedy. Explain that. Like super talented, mm-hmm. one of the most talented people you'll ever meet. But Sly Stone, Dwayne tells this story too, which I think he relates to this. Sly Stone apparently at one point was at a show and they were like, we're about to introduce you. And he's like, ah, I'm not doing it. Oh my God. <laughs> so I think Dwayne Kennedy, and he t- Dwayne tells that story because I think he aspires to that. Oh. Like sold out house, you know, playing like Madison Square Garden. Nah, bub, I'm good. For those of you who didn't know, like, uh, so Dwayne, in a lot of ways, I think was one of the main engines of Totally Biased. Like, especially yes. that first season when we would hit a rut in the writers' room. Like, if Dwayne went off, yeah, he just you just need to get him started. You need to wind like, him that up. could be a whole, a whole act written just off riffing, and he doesn't remember a word he said after. No, he's like, he, it's very much like Jay Z. He doesn't write things down. <laughs> like, he's, just, he's just, he's just, he's just going. And the, we're only telling the story because Dwayne. I was like, hey, Dwayne, you want to hang out in town in Seattle? And come to the recording of Politically Reactive. Maybe we can get you on. You know, promote what you're doing. You're trying to get more work and get your name out there. Yeah, Bub, I'll do it. Cut to Hardy calling him. Hey, man, we're ready. Uh, Bub, <laughs> I'm with you in spirit, Bub. But this is like it was like 15 minutes away from where we are. Yes, and he was like that's all the other side of town, Bub. He had probably started lying down on the couch, and yeah, he's like, I'm he was, not getting he was up. Stuck. He was stuck on the couch. But that's so that's the big story in our lives. But the big story in the in the news media, that we're recording this on Sunday, May 21st, just to begin with, put a frame around all this now. Uh, a lot of you want us to talk about the whole James Comey. He was, you know, James Comey was the head of the FBI. He was the guy who who spilled all the tea about Hillary's emails uh, right before the election, which a lot of people say that's the moment that it was that her loss was sealed. I feel like there's a lots of moments you could point to. So, and also, uh, as head of the FBI, James Comey decided he needed to investigate the whole Russia connection and also... Uh, Michael Flynn, who was like in the administration and fired quickly because he was radioactive. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, and right now, and then Trump fired James Co- and then Trump fired James Comey, and which is something that you don't do with the head of the FBI. They're supposed to have they're supposed to be nonpartisan, nonpolitical. Although we all know that's ridiculous, but they're supposed to have a ten year term, so they're not directly under the influence of any one president. That's why it's ten years. But and they hardly ever get fired. But Trump fired him. And there's all this stuff coming out about how Trump told the Russians, I fired him, so we don't have to worry about that Russia investigation anymore, uh. which is what the French call le obstruction of justice. But we're not going to get into all that, all the weeds of that here. There's because too many things. There's too many things. And it's not really, it's, we, on the show we like to talk about things that we can actually change or information we know or things that can inspire us or problems we need to look at. Right now, 
believe me, if it gets to the point where we're actually talking about impeaching Trump, right now we're talking about talking about it. Yeah. You know. Like, then it's a conversation. Or yeah. if somebody gets Hoffa'd and we're not there yeah, yet. Yeah, exactly. If somebody gets Hoffa'd or because also we have to remember that it, it can't just impeach Trump. You got to impeach Trump and everybody around him. Like you have to like you, <laughs> you can't go yay President oh, Pence, God. yay President Pence. So it's even if Trump goes, it, we're still uh, we will then have the new worst president of all time. Period. The mafia seems like it has a, a better sense of justice and organization. <laughs> no, certainly point. the mafia would really run this much better. They would the trucks would all run on time. The, like the, everybody everybody would get their cut and it would be negotiated cuts instead oh. of yeah you know everybody would get two scoops of ice cream so nobody got whacked right right you know but yeah so there is a special counsel there is a special counsel Robert Mueller who was the head of the FBI for twelve years under Bush and Obama but again again I also feel like. I gotta be honest, everybody. As a black person, I've never heard another black person say, "Ooh, did you see who the new head of the FBI is? This is gonna be good for us." <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like this is not areas that I'm actually that ultimately invested in. <laughs> like it's, it's like it doesn't. Yeah. So. Hey, uh, Kamau. Yeah. I was on a Prairie Home Companion yesterday. That's a wonderful segue. Yeah. Yeah. That, so. I, a lot of people may not be, be. I mean, Prairie Home Companion is one of the biggest shows in NPR of all time. And it was, you know, invented and hosted by Garrison Keillor. Yeah. And he was like, you know, whatever people think Jon Stewart was to The Daily Show, Garrison Keillor was like a hundred times that to Prairie Home Companion. Yes. Like, that's his show. Yes. Uh, it's, it's very loyal following, very loyal listenership, but also not anybody I know who listens to it. Right. So Garrison Keillor retired. He'd had the show for years and years and years. And they got a new host. Chris Thiele, who is fantastic, incredible mandolin player, the great musician, great energy, and... Uh, they had me. I was supposed to be on the show uh, last year uh, in Seattle. Which would have been perfect. Would have been perfect at the Paramount Theater, my dream theater in Seattle. And uh, my flight got delayed eight hours, and I showed up 15 minutes after it ended. Oops. I was yep. supposed to perform with uh, Regina Spector and the Shins. That would have been amazing. That would have been amazing. But uh, this worked out great. It was me, Jim James, for my morning jacket, and uh, Amy Mann. That's amazing. Along with uh, Jonathan Colton and a bunch of wonderful musicians and Chris Thiele and... Uh, it was a really, really fun set, and I was a little nervous. Like I know that St. Paul audiences can be really polite. They don't emote and laugh a lot, and mm -hmm. they laughed. They were fantastic, and I was like, I, I don't think it was my most aggressive stuff, but it was political. So what you're saying yeah. is that you you sort of looked around and see who was there, and you sort of said, how can I push these people in a yes. way that will... That I want to push them, but I also want to keep them in the room. And I felt great. I mean, I talked about hate crimes. That was one thing yeah. I wanted to talk about. I don't yeah. think hate crimes has ever been discussed on a Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> and so, Unless it was about the stealing of a pie from a window. Right. I don't think uh, you know, Lake Wobegon has had that kind no. of woe. No, no. Right? So. <laughs> but it's kind of a, a weird time in America because there's been a surge of hate crimes all over the country right before the election and right after the election. And a lot of the hate crimes are being committed by Trump supporters. And I know they're being committed by Trump supporters because after the hate crimes, they yell, Trump, which is like a clue. You know. <laughs> like you don't hear that from the progressive end. You never hear, I now pronounce you husband and husband, Obama. Like you never hear the other side of that. It was pretty great, um, and every, I mean, Chris was so wonderful. Everybody there was so good to me. I had such a fun time. 
Uh, and uh, then I checked my comments. And, oh, yeah. Your mentions on Twitter. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Apparently. Because it airs live. We should be clear about that. It airs live. And then it'll be, you know, on a podcast. It'll re-air throughout the week. I think some people wanted the show to be like Haribi gone. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they did not like me infusing uh, my point of view and, and politics into it. And I feel like, well, you know, look, it's a different show. It's a different era. And to ignore... What's happening now seems a little silly, and, and I think I, I really, like, the folks at A Prairie Home Companion are so cool, and they really pushed it, not just by having me on, but, like, even Chris was, like, starting to starting to talk about Trump a bit, and it was really cool to actually be in that setting and in the magical Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. Also, uh, before we go to the interview, I just want to say, uh, this past week, uh, Chris Cornell, lead singer of Soundgarden, uh, was found dead in his hotel room. Uh, I don't care to get into the circumstances. That's between him and his family. Uh, but, you know, this is the first celebrity death that actually hit me, like, in a way that I was like, I'm a, I, I always knew I was a huge Soundgarden fan. That was always my Seattle band. We're in Seattle, which is why I feel like I want to talk about it. But, you know, uh, it's just sad. It just sucks. You know, I feel bad for his family. Because it's not a typical rock star death. I want to be clear no. about that. It's, we're not talking about a typical rock star death. But This dude's been through a lot, 52 yeah. years old, married, kids. Yeah. Like He like created this life for himself and yeah. went through a lot to get here. So it's, I mean, it's really painful. And God, his voice is such yeah. an incredible voice. Yeah. Like, it, it's, uh, it's funny. I saw a recording of him with Cat Stevens oh, wow. singing uh, Wild Wild World. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, you just wouldn't imagine the two of them together. You know, he's so excited to be there with Yusuf Islam and yeah. saying, like, isn't it great that he's back? And then they just sang together and it was so beautiful. And it's like, this, you know, regardless of genre, this man had a beautiful yeah, voice. Yeah, he had incredible. And I, and I, and so he had an incredible voice. And really, uh, last night at my Seattle show, I, fit, I said goodnight. And then before I walked off stage, I got the crowd to clap and I sang like the first couple lines of Outshined. Oh, man, that's <laughs> Which, awesome. If I had more, if I had more gumption, I would have sang the whole song. But I really got through the first two lines. I was like, OK, that's weird. I'm singing for real. I'm not right. a singer. And I ran off stage. But I just wanted people to know that I knew I was in Seattle and I know how important Chris Cornell and Soundgarden is to the city. And I just wanted to honor that in some way. So. All right, well, let's get to our guest. Today's guest is Rashad Robinson, the executive director of Color of Change. This interview was originally recorded May 15th, but is still accurate. Let's get him in here. Hey, it's Kamal. How you doing, sir? Good. How have you been? Uh, I've been I've been busy. I'm glad we finally got you on. I know. I know. It's uh, um It's been a long time coming. Oh, yes. I know, and it's it's crazy like this is like less than 10 blocks away from my office. Oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> oh, good. Then we'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone cancels on you and I'm in town now. <laughs> the chance of you being in town is pretty low, I'm sure. So. I know, unfortunately. <laughs> I know, it's like, it's uh, the, all my dead plants. All <laughs> oh, my dead plants. It's uh, a, a good name for your, uh, for your yes. one-man show about your career. Actually, yeah. An unspoken consequence of the Trump administration. <laughs> Absolutely. All, all, my dead, dead plants. all my dead plants. All my dead plants. All my dead plants. All my my dead plants and my Trump 10 pounds. So for those people who aren't familiar with your work, because I feel like your work is kind of the behind the scenes of the revolution a lot of times. Like you, you're people like people like see things like, yay, O'Reilly's gone, but they don't necessarily read below that headline, you know? So how would you describe the work that Color of Change does? 
I always describe it as like we run the campaigns that force decision makers to be nervous about disappointing black people. That we try to <laughs> we try to like find that moment, that's like strategic moment, um, that thing that someone's worried about, the loose string, the the sort of um, the behind the scenes piece, and we like try to go all in to force whoever is trying to make the decision to do what we want them to do. And so oftentimes that is behind the scenes conversations because I always think if you run enough good campaigns, you can do a lot before you actually have to run that campaign. You know, I'm I'm 5'3 and my dad's also short. And so growing up, it was always like, you know, if a bully's after you, sometimes you have to like go out and hit the biggest guy really hard <laughs> and um, really like get him good. You might lose the fight, but afterwards, everyone's going to think you might a little crazy. And a lot of <laughs> folks are like not going to mess with you as a result. And so I've spent um, a lot of my career trying to find the ways to sometimes even when we lose to like not have to fight the next fight so we can win. Uh, I just want to jump in real quick because. You're the reason why when I was six foot one in high school, people were punching me in the face all the time. Why am I getting hit in the face? <laughs> Just because I'm the biggest? <laughs> I'm not even yeah. a bully. <laughs> but yes, but I understand what you're saying. You have to like you have to get in there and it seems like now with the with the reputation, I would imagine that once you've taken down O'Reilly that you that, that when your when your phone call comes up on people's phone, they're like, yo. Well, you know, I'm never in that room, but I sometimes do um, especially when I had more friends that worked in corporations now, like the friends that I had in corporations now, sometimes they like, oh, I have plans on Friday or, you know, no, we're going to have that party without you. But um, but but what we do know is that our emails get returned quicker. Our phone calls get returned quicker. And at the end of the day for us, it's all in service, right, of making the voice of black people more powerful to these folks so that uh, – and also as an organization that doesn't take corporate money, um, when we make these phone calls, oftentimes, especially for years, in my early days, folks would get on the phone with us and they say, oh, hey, we'd love to sponsor this thing you're doing. Or I'm looking on your website and you're registering voters. We'd love to sponsor that. And so uh, being sort of unfiltered about sort of how we're pushing has also been really part of who we are as well. How did it feel when you took down O'Reilly? Like, did you have a party? Do you have falafel at the party? That's a reference to something. (laughs) (laughs) Hold up, wait a minute. Look, I know it's early to do a cutaway, but we have to address the question, how is falafel associated with sexual harassment? Okay, so Andrea Macris is a former associate producer at Fox News, and she filed a sexual harassment suit against her then-boss Bill O'Reilly in 2004, accusing him of repeatedly subjecting her to stories about his sex life. So, you know, like, fiction. And tried to entice her into phone sex, and she recorded some of those conversations. And in one of those conversations, Bill O'Reilly said he wanted to rub her down with a falafel. Now, apparently he meant to say loofah, and he confused the two words. Uh, but either way, there is no winning in this. It is, it is uh, hard to imagine either of those, those things. Come on, are you okay? I think I'm done with this cutaway. We actually were like, we, we, we celebrated quickly, but then we we're also like, what's the pivot to the larger Fox issue? You know, we have this model of respond, build to moments, then find that systemic pivot, that pivot right. that like, 
allows us to um, really force long-term systemic change. So the next week, we were testifying to um, Ofcom, which is the division in in the UK that oversees media mergers. It's sort of like our FCC. And we had submitted a brief challenging 21st Century Fox's attempts to buy Sky Media. And they invited us to submit testimony verbally um, besides just the written brief. And so we were doing that. And so uh, we won the Bill O'Reilly fight, but also did not want to make this about one bad apple right i love the idea that if you mess up we will come for you yes <laughs> do you i mean how often do you get confused with change.org and how often do you have to explain <laughs> no that is not what we do this is a different organization well we do get sometimes people think we're a subsidiary you know we started before uh change.org we started in the aftermath of hurricane katrina change.org is this open platform where you could just go and look for your dog or something on it. Um, I always describe change.org as, you know, change.org is to organizing what a one night stand is to love, right? You have, you can have a I'm bunch listening. of, you can, I'm have, listening. you can have a bunch of different moments on change.org, but they're not investing in anything long-term. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, one night stands could be interesting and fun, but you're not going to really build anything from that. And you're certainly not going to build movements. And so we are very different than change.org in that you just can't come the color of change and, and run any campaign. We think about not just presence, but power. And we think about how do we build long-term power for black people. And when we win for black people, we find that we win for everyone. And when we think about power, we think about power not just in terms of like getting people to return our phone calls, but we think about power in terms of being able to change the rules. Sometimes those rules are the written rules of policy, and sometimes those are the written rules of culture, whether or not a policy is implemented or enforced. And changing the rules is central. And so sometimes people mistake us for change.org. And I wish maybe more donors mistake us sometimes <laughs> because that would sort of help with some of the like fundraising stuff every once in a while. But for anyone who has engaged and fought with us, there is no mistaking. The other thing I want to ask you about is the idea that like like you said you're behind the scenes but you're sort of like in you're pushing the pushing the message forward pushing people to to change their actions but then the other aspect of this of maybe not getting the credit and seeing other people take the credit for things like the Glenn Beck thing from years ago what does that feel like and how do you negotiate that oftentimes we have this thing that happens in the movement where black and brown people women particularly women of color are oftentimes seen as the boots on the ground, the the voices who are going to disrupt and raise their voices. But when it's time to create strategy or or develop the campaigns that are going to change the rules, we've got to find that like smart white guy to like come in and do that. <laughs> and um and that um flows with who gets resources, who gets visibility, who gets support. And so being able to tell the right story is critically important. And I've found, um, whether it was the campaign that we ran that disrupted ALEC and forced over 100 corporations to leave the American Legislative Exchange Council, which was behind stand your ground laws and voter ID laws and so much more, or was it the um, work we did around Beck or O'Reilly? Folks oftentimes want to say, oh, yeah, they were great. They were really strong. We saw their we saw their work. But like who really helped them? And um, and it's not that we don't it's not as if we don't we do things by ourselves. We do things as part of coalitions. But the idea that the media and even 
the political class oftentimes wants to look for sort of like the kind of secret white guy behind things <laughs> is something that we've got to disrupt because it leads us to make the wrong decisions about how we replicate change. Everyone's looking for Oz. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned Alec briefly. Can you talk to us a little bit about voter suppression? What's the game that they're playing? How does it work? Uh, I know Color of Change, you know, you mentioned it too, is working to expose Alec uh, and eliminate their substantial influence over lawmakers. Can you tell us about Alec, for example? Is it a guy? Or is it many people? <laughs> it's a whole lot of people, but it's a lot less people than it used to be. Right. Um, so, what does it stand so for? So ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's about a 40-plus-year-old organization. It was founded by this guy named Paul Ryrick, who was the same guy behind the Heritage Foundation. And he founded basically to bring state legislators and corporations into a room behind the scenes, and they would work together to um, write legislation that then the legislators would then move into the state houses. And Alec became so successful for a time that they would write these legislation behind the scenes, and the state legislators would go back home to their states, and they would forget to take the Alec logo off the top of the page, mm. and they would still be quite successful at moving it. And they were behind everything from the Arizona immigration law to stand your ground laws to voter ID, um, the type of voter ID laws like the one in Texas that said you can vote with your gun license, but you can't vote with your student ID. Mm. Oh. Um, those um, laws, which was Alec was behind, they raised a lot of money from corporations. And a lot of people were pushing back against Alec. But what we really focused on was that 98% of Alec's money came from corporations. Corporations would every single day came to black folks and said, buy our products huh. or use our services. And we started behind the scenes with these corporations. We would like get on the phone with them and while also like doing our public campaign, but we weren't exposing the corporations yet. We were sort of like having this conversation with our members, talking about corporate funded voter suppression while on the behind the scenes, really communicating with these corporations. And we would go back and forth with them and they would say, we give a little to the left and we give a little to the right. right. And we'd say, great, but there's not two sides to black people voting. Right. Then they would go on and on. By the last phone call with the corporation, they would get their senior level black person on the phone with me, and we would like, and I would <laughs> the get on with them. Senior level black person. Oh yeah, no, it was like really. It's exactly how it went, right? I mean, as, as someone hey, who's man, been doing this my type name's of, my name's Leroy. Let's just talk this out, is, brother. Let's just talk this. And he would think, that, yeah, they would talk about like my. I used to vote with my grandfather <laughs> in the voting booth. I would say I voted with my grandfather in the voting booth. And then we would like always agree to get off the phone and that they would like look into it. And we would um, oftentimes be trying to channel for them what a public campaign might look like, why they would not want to like be in the face of this. And some corporations would pull out behind the scenes. And so while we were doing that, um, the tragedy of Trayvon Martin took a hold and our organization worked very closely with many around the country to both push the Department of Justice to get involved, help support some of the uprisings that were happening around the country and really bring our members into that engagement. And weeks into it, we found out that the Stand Your Ground law was also an ALEC law, voted on by um, Walmart, and which is the largest seller of handguns in this country, or long guns as well, and the NRA, which were both ALEC members at the time. And they basically got together and pushed this law into like a dozen states around the country. And so at that point, we were like, 
we had Pepsi that pulled out behind the scenes. We mm. went to so then we got Coca. We went to Coca Cola. So we got forty eight hours. We've been talking to you about voter suppression and stand your ground laws. You advertise in black media. You have a Black History program. You got all this stuff to say that you like want black people to buy Coca Cola, and they would say, you know, we're not part of Alec because of voter suppression. We're part of Alec because. They are helping us fight the discriminatory soda tax. Yeah. I don't think their money is just going to soda tax. <laughs> yes, I, I know. Mean. So, I mean, and so that's what we said. We're like, you know, Alex's money is in a lot of places. So we gave Coca-Cola 48 hours. We put together a website, the all the information, and we sent it to Coca-Cola, and we said, here's everything. Here's the mock-up of the billboards we're going to run. And 48 hours passed. Coca-Cola did nothing. And so then we started going out to our members in the media and started having members start calling Alec, I mean, start calling Coca-Cola about Alec. And about five hours into that, Coca-Cola dropped. Um, and they called us and they said, we're leaving Alec. And then over the course of the next several weeks, we are like mobilizing our members, showing up to shareholder meetings, showing up to uh, rallies at corporate headquarters, running radio ads, all of that in service of forcing these corporations to make a choice that like, they couldn't come for black folks' money by day and then right. try to take away our vote by night. And and in the process, really trying to educate people around why would major corporations be interested in black people, brown people, old people, um, young people not voting? And they were interested in it because they could get the type of tax policies, the type of economic policies they wanted if they could reduce the number of people who were going to vote for progressive things from being able to make it to the polls. We'll be right back after we take care of some business and some business. All right, back to the show. So one thing I like about Color of Change is that a lot of times, I mean, there's some things that are pretty obvious, like Bill O'Reilly shouldn't be on television. Got it. Don't got to convince me. I don't need to read the whole <laughs> thing. I'm just signing up, you know. But then there's things where it's like that are sort of off my radar because it's not it's not directly in my world, but things that I, that I find out I should care about. So recently, Color of Change just released its bail industry report. Can you talk about what's in that and what's the work you're trying to do there? So we've been fighting um, to, like, push back against bail reform for a number of the Bush to push for bail reform, to push back against the bail industry for a number of years. And a couple of years ago, we showed up and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Dr. King's organization, was on the other side of the issue. Oh. And I was like, oh, man, this is not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we asked one of our investigators to try to figure out where they were getting their money from, why they were on the wrong side. And, you know, there was some information we found about lobbying and some donations. But what we also found was just more and more information on how the bail industry is funded. And oftentimes when we're advocating to remove money bail, which is a policy that basically makes it better to be guilty and rich than innocent and poor because people are put behind bars when they are innocent, have not been proven guilty of anything, are left to like sit behind bars because they don't have enough money or to take a plea deal. And the incentive structures are completely off. And so we started looking deeper into it. And basically there are 18 major insurance companies that back about 80% of the industry. These companies have advocated through ALEC, once again, um, to create their own set of laws all throughout the uh, country. And 
these laws basically continue to advance incarceration, to increase incarceration, to increase and hold in place money bail. And so what we're trying to do is that when we show up and advocate places, that we're not just going going up against local bail bonds um, folks that can sometimes be sympathetic figures because they're local businesses, but we're really able to expose this massive industry that's somewhere between $1.4 and $2.5 billion that is basically profiting off of people being poor. And in this sort of era of Trump, in this era of mass incarceration, that the incentive structures to put people behind bars, leave them there while corporations profit and poor communities continue to have their resources extracted from them. This is all happening and we can fight back. And part of what we did with this report was to expose it. But the report is the sort of presence piece of our presence to power framework. But now the work is to channel that to fight the corporations, to fight for local changes to the rules so that the report provides the information, but the organizing, the advocacy, the raising people's voices and holding elected officials accountable, that's the work that changes the rules. I mean, it feels like that the work you're doing with the bail industry is so much more needed with Jeff Session just recently coming out saying we have to go harder than we, you know, we have to prosecute everybody to the fullest extent of the law. Confederate Jeff. Um, (laughs) Confederate Jeff. yeah, God, he looks like he should be like selling. He looks like the Purdue guy, doesn't he? Like the, the chicken oh, the chicken guy, guy like, the chicken guy. Yes. Yeah, he looks like yeah, he looks like I know, I know. It's uh, um, I mean, it's funny how all you... these guys look like like you know like Jeffrey Lord looks like he's on the ten dollar bill. I think all these people have lived throughout time and are like finally yeah, like they, <laughs> yes, it's like yes, Twilight yes, or something. Yeah, <laughs> just put a stick in their back and just like get them out there. No, um, so you know. The, the thing about, you know, Jeff Sessions trying to go back to the pre-Obama sentencing rules, um, the, the, the current Obama sentencing rules were not great. Uh, and so he's going, I mean, they were not great. And so, yeah. like, going back to this, like, era of, um, of crime and punishment that did not produce any type of safety and justice, uh, that treating uh, drugs as crime and not as an issue of health or an issue of decriminalization, we have to do so much more at the local level. So this bail, this work at the bail, bail report, our work around district attorneys, both on the electoral level and then trying to just educate the public about the role of DAs. There's 2,400 district attorneys in this country. Nearly 85% of them run unopposed. And they're the most powerful actors in the criminal justice space. The vast majority of people are incarcerated at the local level. And so... Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump are going to do what they're going to do. And um, we need to build the type of power to get rid of them and get them out of office. So what you're saying is you are prepared to endorse Dwayne The Rock Johnson for president is what you're saying. (laughs) 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 We need a fresh breath, a breath of fresh air. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Kevin Hart as his VP. That's what you're saying. We need we need new people. Yeah. 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 I think I was I the only person that didn't see that movie. I hope uh. I didn't see the movie. So, so I saw the, I saw a lot of the ads for the movie, and that was enough. Yeah, the yeah. the ads convinced me they're a good team. They're a good team. Yes, that yes, is a good yes. airplane movie. Yes. Ah, okay. All right. Well, I will remember that next time I'm on a flight, and and if if it's not good, I'll blame you all. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's interesting the the way you you talked about poverty is lucrative, and like you know, I think when people think of things like that you hear the old arguments well welfare and all these things are are dipping in dipping into the system 
And it's like that is a drop in the bucket compared to the the bail industry. And so for all this discussion of like poor people are taking from the system, do you realize how much is built off the backs of poor people? And that's completely, that's never part of the discussion. I mean, the report that came out of Ferguson that talked about fines and fees and the extraction off of um, poor people, these regressive taxes that that basically fund cities. Mm. The conversation in New York City during the last big sort of snowstorm about like New York City is going to lose $2 million a day because they can't give people tickets. Mm. Um, you know, this, um, <laughs> the ways that oh, no. cities are, I know, I'm like, oh, man. Um, you know, that uh, this, um, this level of... Um, extraction off of poor people and then how the conversation around makers and takers that mm. ends up happening where big corporations are given huge tax breaks they're able to ship jobs overseas they're able to poor, pay people sort of poverty wages and then giving pats on the back because they are somehow job creators they didn't create those jobs so you know you just talked about how jeff sessions wants to go back to pre Obama rules and the Obama rules weren't that good either. So which is, you know, we have to remind ourselves that even as much as we'd love him to to like just walk out of the White House with like, you know, all the GOP's, uh, you know, souls in his hands, <laughs> like, you know, what's going I'm back. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's not going to happen. And that's not even like we'd still be dealing with some with a lot of stuff. That's a movie want. that I would watch, though. Okay. That's <laughs> what I would watch. On the plane. Yeah, I'll, yeah, pitch, I'll yeah. pitch that one to Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Kevin Hart. <laughs> all right. But how do you personally deal with the fact that every day you wake up and Trump is in the White House? I mean, you know, everything you've done up to this point is almost like pre- pre- been doing like, you know, preparing for this moment because it's like we have a. It's a derangement in the White House. How do you deal with it personally? You know, I, I in some ways, like, I, I never, like, went into this election cycle thinking it was a done deal. Although towards the very end when the polling was coming out, I was like, oh, okay, Donald Trump's not going to be president. Let's get our accountability on the Democrats together. Uh, and so I do wake up each morning thinking about a couple of things. How do we understand the threat? And, you know, unlike Obama, who was a change candidate, Donald Trump is a change the rules candidate. And changing the rules is sort of a different type of archetype. And so some of just the conventions by how we think change happens or how people are educated about change happens, I try to remind myself that that is not where we're at. That you just that you know legal rulings might not be implemented the same way policy doesn't happen the same way. We can't legal our way out of this or policy our way out of this or nonprofit executive direct our way ahead of this, you know, I um, I think in many ways, recognizing how the rules have changed is important. We may have disagreed with the politics of a previous housing and urban development secretary, for instance, but we knew they knew something about housing and urban development. And, um, and now we know that they don't. And so as a result, we have really developed this framework that's really about fighting. I also think that it's challenging the Democratic Party on their larger brand problem. Um, The Democrats as a whole, I think, just had a really bad brand, which was really hard for us to be able to mobilize people around in this post-election era, this era of resistance and opposition. I don't want us to make the same mistakes. And I also recognize that like some of the aspects of resistance and opposition are not really like who we're going to be at Color of Change. But I do think that Donald Trump was that big budget Hollywood movie, the one with all of the like 
distractions, the bombs, the explosions, the empire is saved. You forgive the plot twist in those movies. Like you sort of like don't want to have drinks with the person who's dissecting the sort of big budget Hollywood movie after you. <laughs> but seen wait, oh, why would why would Emperor Palpatine, if he was going to, you don't want to talk to that person? Uh, no, and you don't. And on our side, we were like the documentary. And I like documentaries, but the problem with the documentary is that if it doesn't all line up, people throw out the whole documentary. So you can't have a documentary that says, we stand up for the little guy paid for by Wall Street. And so the having a, a movement and a brand that is a brand of action, not just words, is who we need to be coming out of this election. And I think that that is the movement, that is the type of campaigns I'm trying to run because some of the fights, whether it's Donald Trump, the first campaign I launched at Color of Change was trying to hold the black people on Celebrity Apprentice accountable for being on Celebrity Apprentice while Donald Trump was a birther and everyone rolled their eyes um, and said, oh, he's just a celebrity. Like, why you, you should be focusing on real issues when culture and corporate power are real issues. And Donald Trump on the NBC brand pushing out um, the birther platform is what we're paying for right now in many ways. Um, just a couple of uh, quick points. First of all, I believe the film you were referring to with a bunch of explosions was uh, the Expendables franchise. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. A bunch of old super uh, <laughs> action people who had no... Plot whatsoever. Um, but also, I'm sure all of them voted for Trump. I'm pretty sure. I'm oh pretty sure. yes. <laughs> also, a quick uh, point of disagreement. I think I don't think Jeff Sessions wants pre-Obama laws. He wants antebellum laws. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Just to be just. More I mean clear. yes. I mean and 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 um and coming from Alabama um and rising up the way he did with you know jokes about the KKK. I mean that's. Uh, that is how he's gotten elected all these years. And many of us couldn't imagine that someone like that who couldn't get confirmed for a federal judgeship would be confirmed for the attorney general, chief law enforcement officer. But that's sort of why um, losing the culture fights, not paying attention to culture and advocacy and just politics, the culture then moves and it moves in the wrong direction. While we have you here, can you quickly talk to us about the Jordan Edwards case and where it is right now? So before we hear from Rashad, we thought we should back up for a second and go over some of the details of the Jordan Edwards case. We actually covered the Jordan Edwards story on a recent episode with Angela Rye, episode 7, if you haven't heard it. You know what? Let's just let Angela Rye explain. This is the young man who's just 15 years old, um, a young boy, I'll say, unarmed, um, who was shot and killed by a Texas police officer. Um, now, of course, just from an update standpoint, the fact that the officer was fired um, and is facing murder charges, that is more comforting to me than so many of the other cases um, that our community has, has experienced over the past several years since Trayvon Martin. Thanks, Angela. Back to Rashad. So where it is right now is the district attorney has brought charges, which I think um, really speaks to the sort of powerful movements of the people on the ground locally, people all around the country have spoken out. It is not in any way a done deal because the thing that we know is that DAs have brought charges before and have either not put the type of resources into the case as they should have. They've gone to grand juries and not fully 
pushed. And so this district attorney who was re- who was appointed by Republicans is I'm going to be up for re-election in 2018. And we're making it very clear that we are watching her, that we are paying attention to us, to her. Our political action committee, our PAC, this past election cycle engaged in seven district attorney races and did about 1.5 million voter contacts to black voters in those districts through peer-to-peer text messaging. And we helped to win five of those seven races. And so we're letting folks down there know that we are paying attention. And so... That's what we know. We also know that no amount of um, advocacy on the back end and putting people behind and holding police accountable and putting them behind bars will bring him back, will bring Jordan back. And what we know is we have to do so much more work at changing the culture of policing in this country, changing the vision for safety and justice that doesn't look like police on every corner, and and start dealing with some of the other structural issues that have created the type of um, challenges we've had from um, the ways in which um, jobs and and healthcare and education have all been things that have left our communities. So, and in, in those places, they've put law enforcement and policing and extraction of resources. And so the, the issue of, of what we have to do here is yes, we have to hold this police officer accountable. And then we've got to fight for a different vision for safety and justice because the fact of the matter is, is that all of our kids will not be safe just if we are, you know, holding police accountable. I mean, strangely, that sounds like the most positive spin of the whole, of the of all these tragedies. It's like, yes, the justice uh, the immediate justice might not happen because the system is what it is and it, because there is so much racism. However, perhaps these tragedies will lead to greater uh, police reform in the long run and also will vote people out. If this keeps happening, people will be voted out and people who can actually bring cops to justice for what they've done will actually be appointed, will actually be elected. I mean, is that I mean, is that about right? That's that's about right, and I will say that in the to, and there's no sugarcoating, right? The election of Donald Trump um, is bad because we didn't think that the President Obama was doing everything that we wanted him to do. We were sure. pushing on him. I'd been in the White House in multiple meetings with him around policing and criminal justice in particular. I had an exchange with one of the leaders of the Fraternal Order of Police um, at the last meeting that I had with President Obama, where he was in the. Mr. Pascal from the Fraternal Police um, says says something to the effect of that all of the talk of um, racial profiling was new to him. Uh, yes, yes. Like wow. I mean, not a newspaper, a TV show. I was stunned. We had a back and forth about it, and you know, the president sort of jumped in in his calm sort of way and and sort of got both sides talking. All of that to say the. Uh, forces that were at least getting people to the table, that were at least holding police officers accountable, that the Fraternal Order Police felt like they had to show up and be accountable and answer questions. Now, the first 100-day plan they handed over to Trump talked about ending um, the Racial Profiling Act that George W. Bush signed. Um, So we are talking about the type of rollbacks that... Are, are sort of beyond um, what we, you know, even even at a time where we know we weren't achieving everything we wanted. And so I don't want to sugarcoat it, but what I will say is that the work that's happening at the local level that couldn't have happened without 
the movement for black lives that couldn't have happened without people raising their voices in communities by strong organizations showing up and people within color of change who take action, who showed up to textathons, to text and join into advocacy in places that they didn't even live to help fight for new district attorneys. All of that is how do we translate this mo- this movement moment into the ability to actually change things. And I, and that is what makes me confident, um, is that I'm confident in people power. I'm confident in people raising their voices and being able to fight back and win. You know, intersectionality is the thing that we talk about a lot. I mean, can you talk about the kind of intersectionality that you, you've done with your work and, and the variety of roles that you've, you've had? Yeah, I've always tried to um, both live as clear and authentic as possible and then try to translate that into strategies that are scalable beyond just me because it's not about like whether or not I'm intersectional or like whether or not I'm trying to make space, but how like structurally does that play itself out? I also think about our opponents a lot, right? So we just finished this campaign against Bill O'Reilly and he's fired. Mm. The first time I went up against Bill O'Reilly was 10 years ago. He ran this story about lesbian gangs taking over the, um, the D.C. area, basically. This is a lower socioeconomic crew, all right, who identify themselves as lesbian or gay. And they right. band together, just like some of the ethnic gangs do, to right. do harm. I mean, they just want to hurt people. He had this so-called crime expert on who got on the air and said, there are like a hundred lesbian gangs in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And, you know, I had like my lesbian friends were like, there's not that many lesbians in the D.C., Virginia (laughs) metro area. Um, Anyway, he said that it was like they were trying to convert women and there was just this whole horrible story. Um, Glad, along with the Southern Poverty Law Center, responded. It was also racialized in some of the images he used where he was really like talking about black lesbians, but he didn't really say that. The crime expert he had on was black. And so they went about, we released a, we released an action alert. We went back and forth with Fox. Somehow, and I still can't remember, I ended up being the person that got sent on Fox News to go on the O'Reilly oh, Factor no. to fight him about this story. So I am at the time like 27, 28 years old. I just had got promoted at GLAAD. I, I was like, I am going to This is either going to be good or I'm going to be fired. Most likely I'll be fired. I remember getting to, um, and this is really sort of like how you have to show up in many different ways. I get to um, Fox in D.C. to tape the O'Reilly show. Uh, Pat Buchanan is um, in the uh, in the green room. He oh. thinks I'm a, a production assistant, so he asks oh. me, or or he thinks I'm someone that should be serving him water. I should say him, um, but but you should know that 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 um, about a year into my time at Color of Change, we ran the campaign that got him fired from MSNBC. So um, so he's getting his own water now. Um, <laughs> but um, Rashad holds a grudge. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fun. I, I'm like now not knowing what to do. I get onto the Bill O'Reilly show. Um, I go back and forth with him. He admits that the story wasn't inaccurate. And he he's claimed that they would do better in the future. And the New York Times, like a couple of days later, actually did a story on the fact that Bill O'Reilly admitted he like should do better. He didn't quite apologize, but they um, talked about the story. They talked about me going on. And for the next several weeks, 
the O'Reilly Factor called and wanted me to come back on. Sometimes they called it a rematch. Oh, um, oh, but no. I was like, I was like, I'll never go back on the O'Reilly Factor. He admitted that he like they didn't do a good job. They'll do better next time. I can never do any better. Uh, but um, he didn't do better. And and corporations continued to put their brands next to him. And Color of Change, when I got there, um, had a robust media program already. James Rucker, the predecessor, led the brilliant campaign to get Glenn Beck off the air. When I showed up, the Glenn Beck campaign was, you know, in its final couple of episodes where the only advertisers you'd see was those companies you could put gold in an envelope, send it in, and they send you back cash. <laughs> oh, that Invisalign? Um, oh, that Invisalign? Those were the companies that were advertising. And so, but... Um, we wanted to continue to sort of run those campaigns, running campaigns to get Pat Buchanan fired or running campaigns to get Bill O'Reilly fired. And each, and whether like our movement fully recognizes it, these folks um, are pushing for a worldview that puts so many different communities in harm's way. And having the type of interventions that just don't deal with communities as women over here or black folks over here or, or folks who are disabled or Muslim or LGBT, um, but dealing with people as whole people and figuring out the right interventions that scale people's ability to have full opportunity. I mean, we people throw around the term intersectionality, but I am just so thankful to the, um, particularly to the black women, um, the academics, the, the queer women. I'm just in such gratitude to folks like Kimberly Crenshaw and others who helped to bring this type of framework and give us the language and the tools to be able to translate it to our work. Uh, before you go, I just want to say thank you for coming today. And clearly you are a busy man because I got an email from you while you're sitting here talking on our show. Oh, man. That's like the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> Is that it? Like, I'm sitting here, the email goes out, so you know, like, yeah, you yeah, see yeah. me, there's no phone. <laughs> there's no phone in front of me. So, like, I can't claim that I, like, was sitting there writing it. <laughs> the well, email funny. goes out to a... Yeah. It was just funny because I was like, I only looked because I was like, wait, he's reaching out to me? Like, is he like, hurry is weird. I got to get out of here. But it was like, <laughs> yeah. but it was, it was like, what is, like, what is this over again? Hurry <laughs> <laughs> won't look at me in the face. Something's weird about it. <laughs> well, he's actually looking down at his phone because I know he's communicating with you. Yeah. And so I want to get in on the act. I no, want okay. to like, communicate too. Yeah. Well, well yeah. anyway, thank you for doing the work you do. It is important. Yeah. I, again, uh, just I'll call you tomorrow. You give me the hour long update tomorrow about what's going on and uh thank you for thank you for keeping hope alive no thank you thank you all for what you are doing as well i appreciate it come on what did you learn today i learned that color of change is at the forefront of the campaigns that force decision makers to be worried about disappointing black people amen and i learned that change.org is to organizing what a one-night stand is to love Wow, I don't think change.org ever thought they'd be described as a one-night stand. Oh, my like, God. I feel like we're going to hear from change.org. Uh, yeah, a little bit. We might have to do a change.org episode now. Is there going to be a change.org and a color of change fight? Is that oh, what we're doing? Like oh. a rap battle. Oh, no. I learned that the media always loves to find a secret white guy behind black and brown folks organizing. Hurry, who's your secret white guy? Max. Okay. I learned that a handful of insurance companies are in the business of the bail industry, an industry that makes it better to be guilty and rich versus innocent and poor, 
and color of change is exposing how this industry is profiting off of people being poor. I actually did learn that, and I mean, I still know that, but I think we need to say that over and over again. Help them target those companies and change the bail industry. I learned that Rashad calls Jeff Sessions Confederate Jeff. That's perfect. <laughs> I learned that changing the written rules of policy and culture is central to Color of Change's work. When you don't pay attention to culture and advocacy and primarily focus on politics, the culture moves, and it moves in the wrong direction. I've learned that Pat Buchanan gets his own water now. <laughs> oh, yeah, Pat. Fuck Pat Buchanan. Fuck him. Oh. Whenever the media talks about white supremacy and, and, you know, how did this happen? How did Trump happen? I mean, Pat Buchanan had his own show on all these networks. <laughs> he is the original. All right. All these white supremacists they talk about now, Pat Buchanan predates all of them, has been saying all this shit in his books, but he was the one they allowed on. Remember when there was an idea that he was reasonable? Remember that? He ran for president. Yeah. He got votes. He was at debates. He was the reasonable one. Ugh. Oh, white supremacy. Will you ever lose? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks again to Rashad Robinson. Please check out the great work Color of Change is doing. Get involved at colorofchange.org. You can follow Rashad on Twitter at Rashad Robinson. That's R-A-S-H-A-D-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N. And you can follow Color of Change at Color of Change. That's C-O-L-O-R-O-F change. Also, we love when you comment on Twitter using the hashtag politically reactive. So just keep doing that. Also, check us out on Facebook. Have you have you tried this Facebook? It is fantastic. And we'd love to see one of our live politically reactive shows. We'll be at the Limestone Comedy Festival in Bloomington, Indiana, where my mom lives. The show is Friday, June 2nd. We've got two great stand-up comics on that show, Arish Singh and our good friend comic, Corinda Dobbins. Tickets are at limestonefest.com, and I think my mom's going to make a special appearance on the podcast. We'll also be at the Comedy Central Colossal Clusterfest in San Francisco with our dear friend Lindy West and our other dear friend Phoebe Robinson. That's on Sunday, June 4th. Tickets at Clusterfest.com. And my albums are still available on the internet. My uh, new album, Hari Kundabolu's New Material Night Volume 1 on Bandcamp, as well as uh, Mainstream American Comic and Waiting for 2042. Let me just suggest you buy all of them. You can find it all at harikundabolu.com or more realistically at, uh, at Google. You will Google me. Uh, also, if you live in Colorado, come check me out in Denver in July. I'll be at the Comedy Works Denver July 13th through the 15th. Also, I'll be doing shows in Burlington, Philly, and Baltimore. Information soon to come. And if you get a chance, go to my brother's Twitter page, at Dapwell, at D-A-P-W-E-L-L. -L. Lots of great content there. Hey, hurry. Don't I have an album out, too, on Kill Rock Stars like you do? Oh, my God, you do have an album out on Kill Rock Stars. What's it called again? I believe it's called Semi-Prominent Negro. Maybe they should purchase that as well. And when they do that, they can also get my new book, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell. Pick it up at your local bookstore or at wkamaubell.com. And I've also got a few stand-up dates in the next few weeks. June 8th, I'll be in Baltimore, Maryland. June 9th, I'll be in Arlington, Virginia. June 10th, I'll be in Norfolk, Virginia. June 15th, I'll be in Oakland with Kamau Right Now. June 16th, I'll be in Chicago, Illinois. June 17th, I'll be in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And June 18th, I'll be in Detroit at the Fillmore. I just looked up the capacity. It's way bigger than any venue I've ever played. Detroit, I need you there. Also, be on the lookout for the next episode of my CNN show, United Shades of America. It's all about guns. You can catch it on Sundays, 10 p.m. on CNN. 
Politically Reactive is a production of Topic and distributed by Earwolf. Our executive producers are Lisa Langang and Lita Malad. The show is produced by Max Jacobs, Erica Moo, and Laura Flynn. Today's show was engineered by Dan Gallucci and Chris Hoff. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York. And thanks to Marco Mendoza, who I'm looking at right now at Clatter and Din in Seattle. And thanks as always to Brontes Purnell for providing music for our show. 